If you're a widow who's nice and who loves Jesus, <laughs> well, some of you should be saying real hard amen that Jesus welcomes weirdos, outsiders, those on the margins, those who don't perhaps look like we do and think we, we, we do, but Jesus seems to have a a hospitality and a generous spirit that extends beyond perhaps even our graciousness. For this we give God thanks. For this we praise the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. For he has made it possible for each one here to be his. Thanks be to God. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as I read the word this morning, and we're going to turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to read from verse 38 to 50, and uh, we're going to say this prayer together just before um, I read the scripture. One of the things we, we're trying to do as a church is we're trying to embody a, a way of being together as the people of God in hearing God's word. And one of the ways we try to do that is we try to do it through prayer. There's something profound about praying together as the church. And as we together pray this prayer, I pray that it would be more than just the words on the screen, but that it would express the desire of our hearts. After we read this prayer, I invite you to remain standing until I've read the scripture. Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the Scriptures are read and your Word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able to soon afterward speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly, I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble... Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell, where their worm never dies and the fire is never 
quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Disciples in Mark's gospel don't have the best reputation. If we were to plot their progress and uh, on a graph, for those of you who like graphs, and the uh, vertical axis says we get Jesus and do what he tells us, and the horizontal axis says how long we've been following him, it starts up here, but it soon goes downward. It seems that they don't tend to uh, kind of understand sometimes. They, they don't tend to get it sometimes. And yet, we do get the sense that they follow despite their inadequacies. You know, sometimes when I preach from the Scriptures, we, we, we beat up on the Pharisees a lot, right? Because... You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, they, we, we kind of beat up on these religious leaders a lot. But truth be told, sometimes the disciples, they're not the best example. They don't always get it. In fact, just before our text, they couldn't drive out a demon from a demon-possessed boy. In fact, his father comes to Jesus and he says, listen, I brought my son to you. He's been kind of foaming at the mouth, and he's been falling into stuff, and this, this, this evil has got a real hold of him, and I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. And then Jesus says, he says, you faithless generation, <laughs> how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Jesus got to say, Listen, I've kind of given you how this thing works already. You know, uh, in my name, faith in who I am, you are able to cast out even demons from those who are possessed. We see the disciples not only having little faith when it comes to what Jesus believed they could do, but we see that they kind of jockey for position. Uh, the text that precedes the text we're in says that Jesus interrupts a conversation they're having, asking what they're talking about, and it comes to light that they were asking, hey, who gets the best seat in the house in this new thing you're doing? Who gets the power and the decision-making? Who, who, who's going to be better off in this new kingdom? And in typical Jesus fashion, he, he brings a little child into his, their midst and sits the little child down and says, you know, if you don't welcome little children who then had little status, nothing to gain from, no power, they certainly were not considered to be the greatest. If you, if you don't have this understanding that in God's kingdom the least are welcomed, you cannot follow me. And there's this powerful way in which Jesus teaches the disciples that the kingdom is not about 
the things that they'd like it to be about. I think sometimes we as Christians would like Jesus to kind of have a kingdom that we'd like to define for him. If you could just do things the way I want God, then I'd be happy. But Jesus is inviting disciples to, to see things the way that he sees things. And so the description of discipleship so far, I think legitimately in Mark's gospel, is defined by unbelief and seeking privilege. In our text, there is a third definition that arises for the kind of disciples we do not want to be. We do not want to be unbelieving. Neither do we want those who seek privilege. Uh, in our text, we see that there is a discipleship that is defined by the exclusion of others. John, speaking on behalf of the rest of the disciples, informs Jesus that they had attempted to stop a man. Now listen to the scripture, verse 38. They did not know from casting out demons in the name of Jesus because he was not following them. Uh, get this. Irrespective of the good the man was doing, you know, now I know here in Western culture, we, we don't think too much about the reality of possession. We don't think too much about the presence of a real evil in our world, but in the biblical days and perhaps in many regions in our world still today, there are people when they hear this, they, they're not distant from this reality. They know this kind of thing happens. And if we were to, you know, assume their posture, we would realize that, that this is something significant. This is something important that this man is doing. He is liberating someone from something that keeps him bound and threatens to keep him living the life that he was living. But irrespective of this exorcist doing the liberating work of God, the disciples become stumbling blocks to the very work that Jesus called them to do to advance his kingdom when they try to prevent someone from doing the very thing that he has called them to do. They model a discipleship that no one should follow. <laughs> one that is rooted in unbelief and one that is rooted in their own advancement and one that is now described as not wanting others to be a part of things if they could not be behind them. I'm just going to check this morning. Are you with me? Can I get an amen? I think that Jesus then corrects what good discipleship should look like. And this is not going to blow your mind at all. In fact, nothing I say is new to you. But Jesus would kind of paint for them a picture of discipleship that is rooted in a, in a true faith in him. If you read the opening passage, you, you realize that, that this man was doing the work he was doing in the name of Jesus. In fact, it's repeated several times to make the point even stronger 
that this man, though not one of the disciples immediately following Jesus, had come to hear at some point of Jesus, believed enough in the power that Jesus had that he believed this, that in Jesus' name, he can cast out what the disciples couldn't cast out, and he reveals a faith to the very ones following Jesus that they did not possess. Let me say it differently. Good discipleship is rooted in a faith that does not just claim the name of Jesus, but acts in accordance what that name means. In fact, faith that works according to the work of God reveals a faith that is real, a faith that is true, not a faith that is just checked on a census box that says, yes, I acknowledge that I am Christian, but a faith that is willing to step into places and encounter things that only God can change. And when the church believes that this is what faith is, faith becomes life. I think Jesus is teaching his disciples that sometimes we can miss out on what he's doing when we write people off. When we think it's just certain people that look like us and do what we do, or perhaps I'll say it this way, you know, we Nazarenes tend to think when we get to heaven, we'll be the only ones there. No one's laughing. You know, sometimes we Christians think that, that if people are not with us, with our gender, with our mission, with our church, with our way of doing things, with us but kind of behind us, that they are not legitimately a part of the work of God, but Jesus would teach his disciples an important lesson that I think the church needs to just kind of listen to today. Wherever the work of liberation is done in the name of Jesus. That is where the kingdom is breaking in. And instead of the church becoming critical, selfish, who do they think they are? Let's legitimize them by having them come to our church. We celebrate wherever God is doing his liberating work in the world. Come on, church. And we recognize that it is in his name, in his name, that this man is doing the work that his very own disciples could not do. If faith is critical to discipleship, the other thing I would say to you is if we want to discern whether things are authentic, uh, faith in Jesus looks like doing the kinds of things that Jesus would do. Oh, I think about my growing up. Sometimes when people wanted to kind of have legitimacy for what they were thinking, they thought that if they just slapped the name of Jesus on it, it's okay. Sometimes people can abuse the name of Jesus for their own purposes. Sometimes people can say things, do things historically in the name of Jesus that has nothing to do with Jesus. Just because you claim it doesn't mean it's true if you don't believe it and you do what he has called you to do. 
In fact, one of the markers of knowing when somebody is doing the work of Christ, very simple yet important, I think, is that it looks like the kind of thing that Jesus would do. Would Jesus liberate someone from possession? Yes, he would. Would Jesus give someone a cold cup of water as a means of refreshing? Yes, he would. You know what I I love about the text is Jesus paints this picture about faith that is not just about this powerful liberation, but Jesus would say, faith even shows up in the acts of compassion done for those who carry his name. I love the way that Jesus helps his disciples because I got to be honest, I sometimes don't look like the one he has called me to be. How about you? Oh, when I uh, turn onto my social media and I look at my uh, status, uh, I'm what many young people here would call an influencer. (laughs) You know, sometimes inappropriate laughter at the wrong time. When I, I, I turn on to uh, uh, social media and I, and I look at the kinds of things that Christians tend to say in this day, the kinds of things we post, the kind of uh, ways we betray that we belong, I, I look at Scripture like this and I I say, where is the kind of faith that, that, that reveals who Jesus is? Where is the kind of faith that understands that even in simple acts of compassion, people can be drawn to who he is? Where is the kind of faith that believes that amidst all the hard, difficult, heavy things we encounter when we go on social media, there is one that the Scripture says is able to do immeasurably more than we think or ask. Where is the faith that says, yes, pandemic, yes, it is hard, yes, it is challenging, but we know a God that is great and mighty to save. Where is the faith that lives in such a way that we do not wallow in self-pity or in fear or in anxiety, but learn to cast all things unto the one who is able to care for each one of us. Where is such faith, church? Instead, we see a John-like faith. Who are they? They're not legitimate. Instead, we see a a John-type spirit. Let's stop what others are doing because we don't know them. We see an unbelieving church that thinks the power to transform the world rests solely in their abilities or even in their programming. But Jesus would have us believe that He alone and in His name, we can see the kingdom advance Despite all that we witness in this world, I wonder where such faith lives today.
But Stu, you, you don't understand. You're looking fine up there with your blue jacket. There again, inappropriate time to laugh. You're, you're a pastor, so somehow that must mean that, that you know, you, you just walk, you walk through life and, and everything is just fine. You can't relate to the challenge I'm facing. You, you don't understand what I'm dealing with. You know, one of the hardest things of being a pastor is to learn how to walk in front of people with the hope of Jesus Christ that sustains you, yet not having people put you in this bracket of, uh, of saintliness so that they can not ever aspire to walk in the ways that Jesus wants them to walk. And one of the things that you have to learn when you come to Skyview is that one of our values is transparency. We, we, we understand that we live in a world where people are suspicious of authority. Yeah? They, they're suspicious of the church. You know, I, I often, I often uh, think about the times when my dad was a pastor. My dad's no longer alive, but the times when my dad was a pastor, people would would actually go and see the pastor for advice. The people would actually respect and revere him. But we live in a, in a day and age now where even that idea of what it means to be a pastor has somehow been corrupted. Yes, sometimes through the sins of man, sometimes through what churches did and did not do. But I want to suggest to you, my friends, that as I stand before you as a person proclaiming this faith, it is a faith that I need for my life. A faith that I need for today. A faith that enables me even when things go sideways, and they do. No amens on that? Sometimes things fall out of the bottom when we just least expect it. Sometimes things happen that we just have no control of, and we say, God... What is going on here? What is happening here? What will get you through is not the wisdom and the counsel of somebody on, on the internet. It's not going to be a, a nice saying, a, 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 nice, a nice insightful comment from somebody smart. I can tell you as I bear witness to this in my own life that what will get you through is putting your faith not in man, not in philosophy, not in ideas, but in the living Christ. Such faith that calls us as disciples to let go of all the things we want from God and to trust in Him for what we need. I think our scripture tells us a few other things. It says that if you want to be that kind of Christian, you have to be careful of how you live so that you don't become a stumbling block to others. Uh, verse 40, 42, it says this. It says, uh, if any of you would put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Man. Huh. Jesus is warning them with a very strong, a very strong image. You know, I'm going to translate it for you. It says, if you begin to stand in the way of others, if you become a problem for others living for me, 
you'll eventually drown yourself. I think Jesus is saying that to not be a stumbling block is to, uh, to not prevent others from coming to him or attempting uh, to somehow exclude others because you don't think that they are welcomed by Jesus. This church has one of its values is uh, hospitality. And I say this often enough to say to you as a church, you should be able to repeat it after me, that Skyview hospitality is not just potlucks, though it is. All God's people says, thank you for Charlene Cunningham. But hospitality is making room even for those who feel there is no room. I want to pause for a second and say some things. People are looking for a home. Um, people are looking for belonging. Uh, one of our, 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 our church folks, uh, he, he hates when I reference him, but Joel Thiessen is a sociologist of religion. One, one, one week, I remember a number of years ago, I preached a sermon based on the gospel text, the harvest is ripe. Do you know this? But the laborers are, laborers are few. Hey, now, he's a sociologist. I'm a theologian, pastor. He wrote a, an article that next day with the question, is the harvest ripe? I chuckled. <laughs> I said, if that ever portrays theology and sociology at its best. The question that Joel was raising was, are people truly hungry for God the way we think they are? The affirmation that I made in the preaching of the word is that Christ teaches his disciples that even when people don't know what they are searching for, they are ultimately searching for Christ. If we are going to be a place that is hospitable, we must learn to become generous. Less critical. What is gained by the church who constantly points out how wrong everybody is? According to Scripture, there is but one who is able to judge and to judge righteously. There is but one who is able to discern between the sheep and the goats. Let's leave that up to him. You know what our work is? To faithfully follow, to serve, to trust Him, to believe His Word, to encourage others, to pray, to pray, to pray. You know what the absence of prayer reveals about the church? that we think we can live without God. Prayer says 
as a testimony to our world that without God, we cannot be who He's made us to be, let alone carry the weight of things we are called to carry. I've heard people say to me, say, Stu, you know, uh, you know, we're living in unprecedented times. Anybody hear that? And then others say, well, you know, 100 years ago, it was pretty bad. And I kind of listen to both those, and I say, yeah, but you know what? The reality is, it doesn't often help people, especially when you say, I know you're suffering right now, but you know, like 100 years ago, they really suffered. Neither does it help for us to, as Christians today, forget that others have suffered in ways that perhaps we cannot relate to, and yet God has been faithful throughout every generation. Don't become a stumbling block. And then I think the Scripture says to us in verses 43 to 48, get rid of anything that makes you stumble. Jesus uses hyperbole, and I'm going to impress you. I know there's a, there is a Greek scholar here, so I'm going to be careful with how I say this. Via the Latin from the Greek, the word hyperbole means Simply exaggeration, but it actually means to throw high. And I want to be very careful on this point because Jesus says some incredibly hard things. Cut off your hand, your foot, pluck out your eye. It's hyperbolic. Jesus is exaggerating to an extreme to make an equally significant, important point. I think what Jesus is saying is not only can we be stumbling blocks to others from following Christ, but we can often have things in our lives that do the same to us. Let's face it, hands matter, feet matter, eyes are vital. And yet at the same time, Jesus is saying that sometimes when we allow things or even circumstance and perhaps even at times people I heard someone say the most profound Jesus-like thing this past week. They said, I'm not on social media anymore. Oh, that's some cutting off of stuff. For some right now, you're just kind of going, are you serious? That's what Jesus is telling me? Don't tell me Jesus is telling me to get off social media. <laughs> but perhaps there's things in your life, um, things that become a priority. They're not in and of itself bad things, but they've just become so significant that they are thwarting your faithfulness. They are keeping us from following well. I uh, wonder this morning that as we come to the table whether we could keep these images before us. Images of faith. 
images that invite us to, um, to examine our hearts, uh, to maybe pray like uh, the Scripture says, uh, search me, O God, and know my heart today. See if there's anything in me that keeps others from following you. See if there's anything in my life that is keeping me from that which you've called me to do and called me to live. And lead me. Lead me back to your grace, to your hope, to your mercy, to your forgiveness. As Stephanie comes and they lead us in worship once more. I want to invite you to consider the words that have been sung and the words that have been preached. And as a, take it as an opportunity to even prepare your hearts and your minds to graciously participate in a sacrament that represents for us as the church the great love of Jesus. Uh, before Stephanie leads us, it's important for you to know that you don't have to be a voting member of this church to participate in the sacrament, but equally significant. It's important that you understand what it means before you do. The Lord Jesus Christ instructed us to participate in this meal in a way that helps us to remember who He is and what He's done. And today He says to the church, I am the one who leads disciples that sometimes don't get it, that sometimes fail, but I'm the one that is gracious, willing, to save and to restore. Oh, how we need Jesus. With all the many things in our world, how we need Jesus today. So will you stand as we sing this song?